All right, let's continue where we were. And uh, let's see, we will jump back to, where are we going to turn to start? Um, starting Galatians 1, <clears throat> Galatians 1, and we'll be there in a second. Let me just backtrack a little bit uh, to talk about where we've been. Galatians 1. All right, what we've been talking about, we're kind of right in the middle of say, course. This course we're going through is effective Bible study. And uh, back at the very beginning, we spent some time just asking that question, what is effective Bible study? What does it look like? And uh, it really, I know it's something that's so basic that, that we all say, well, well, I know that. But to really stop and articulate what, what that looks like, what it is, it's a good, it's a good exercise for us. Is it merely just accumulating fact? Is it merely being able to answer questions? Uh, is it just strictly memory? Bible memory is wonderful. Uh, you young people, good job memorizing. But don't stop there. Meditate on those. Think about what those verses mean. Do something about them. You said iron sharpens iron. What does that mean? What is that? Coronavirus, you help him. I'm not going to just pin him down. Iron sharpens iron. What, what is that? Help me out. What are some applications from that? What does iron do when you scrape it on iron? It sharpens it. It sharpens it, yeah, but do pillows sharpen pillows? Do pillows sharpen iron? No, yes. Tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance. Tribulation, I think, is part of it, definitely. And when we talk about sharpening each other, it doesn't mean we're abrasive and spiritual jerk bags. That's not what that means. But it means solid brethren, sharp and solid brethren. The questions we ask, the answers we give, the way we look at things has a sharpening effect. It's a, a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. And uh, thank God for good fellowship. I cannot tell you in my own life, and most of you would probably say the same thing, how solid friends, and, and, by, and I have found solid friends don't come by all the time. There's a, a little bit of selectivity that goes on. But boy, what a help. Um, I, in fact, I talked to a dear brother last night, older, much older pastor, he's one of my best friends, and we were just reminiscing about some time years ago where he was going through some stuff, and I had opportunity to be a friend. And, and there's been times where I'm going through stuff, and he's the one doing the picking up. and It's such a precious gift. Um, anyway, back to where I was. I got off on that a little bit. Sorry. Um, effective Bible study, though, is understanding the text in its context, actually knowing what the passage means. All right, any Bible passage has how many legitimate meanings? How many meanings does a Bible passage have? One. One meaning. The passage means one thing. Now, there's applications that can be made. And sometimes we look at a passage and say, I'm not sure what that means. There, I could give you, it, trust me, there's some of those I would say, I'm not positive. It's maybe one of these. But I'm not going to say it means four things. It means what you feel. I mean, what is this, you know, the circle with coffee, they sit around and 
What does this text mean to you? That does not matter. What does this text mean? What did the author mean? What's the context? Who's it written to? What's it talking about? Okay, so we determine what it means, and then out from that we make application. All right, now, uh, what am I going to do about it? And then, of course, there's a submission part, actually changing my life. Okay, all of that is part of effective Bible study. And one of the areas we've been zooming in on is figures of speech. I thank God for figures of speech. I'm fascinated with language. I'm not a linguist. I know pastors that are word buffs, and they, they get into all this technical language, and some of them can talk about you know, the history and all these big fancy words, talking about words, and, and, I, and I'm lost in a hurry with some of the conversation. But I'm fascinated with language nonetheless, and especially language that illustrates things colorfully or restates things in a way that's interesting. I thank God that in His Word, He uses figures of speech. I mean, now I'm not disparaging Exodus 20 through 24, the giving of the law. It's a part of Scripture. But uh, God could have written the entire Bible in that format. Imagine if the whole New Testament followed the format Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt, or else, or else, or else. And that was the whole Bible. He didn't do that. Now, part of it, because that misses the real motive of things, but part of that is God is gracious and good, and He knows our frame, and so He uses all these different literary devices and all these different types of writing from biography and history to uh, poetry. And so we've been talking about figures of speech, and again, I just want to hasten, we talk about, well, do we believe in literal interpretation here? It depends what you mean by that. Uh, normal interpretation is probably a better way to put it. Uh, sometimes people say, well, you believe in literal interpretation. You don't, you, don't, you don't accept figures of speech. That's not true. Normal interpretation recognizes figures of speech. And we use a lot of these every day without recognizing it. The Bible uses figures of speech a great deal. Again, we mentioned the, when the Lord uh, talks about himself as having wings and feathers. A wooden literalness says God is a big bird. No, it's a figure of speech. So we interpret the Bible literally, yes, but we recognize figures of speech that are there. What we don't do is allegorize things that have plain meaning. There's no reason to do that. So we've been talking about some of these figures of speech. Let me just uh, remind us a little bit um, about what some of them were. We were talking about uh, compare, different comparisons, similes and metaphors. Uh, something is like something or something is something. The Lord is my shepherd. Okay, metaphor. Um, and uh, personification, that's where all the trees of the field clap their hands. That's giving human characteristics to created elements. Obviously, the trees aren't clapping, but it's, it's using figurative language that puts seasoning on the passage, so to speak, and gives us mental pictures. Uh, anthropomorphisms, uh, that's when God portrays himself with human characteristics. God the Father, there are psalms that particularly talk about God's hands, his feet, his eyes, his wings. He does not have parts. Okay, uh, Contrary to the heretical views of God that come out of multiple fake religions, God the Father does not have a physical body. Okay, But those are figures of speech. They are helping us understand. Yes, he's spirit, 
But that doesn't mean he's unfeeling and uncaring and not individualistic. You think of God's hands. What is that? When you talk of man being created by God's hands, what does that tell you? It was precious and individual. He cares. It wasn't just be created, but he was involved in it intimately, and he still is in each of our lives. Um, hyperbole. Uh, Again, this is different. This is an intended, intentional exaggeration. Uh, This is not lying exaggeration. A lot of exaggeration is lying. But there is a figure of speech that is intentional. And you and I, again, we do this. If you've gone to the DMV during COVID, what happened? You sat there forever. Did you really sit there forever? No. Do you think I sat there forever? No. We understand the figure of speech. I felt like I had to walk a thousand miles across the parking lot. Hyperbole. Uh, The Bible does that in places. Uh, We mentioned the passage in Joshua, uh, Joshua 11.4. It says this this army they're coming against was like the sand on the seashore in multitude. Now is the meaning of that to count the men and count the sand and say, okay, it was 7.6 billion? No, that's obviously, that's not what it's saying. But the idea was, it was... An overwhelming number, it just filled the eyes. Okay, it's, it's a word picture. Um, so there's, again, several of those. And then where we stopped last time was uh, the importance in a text of observing the atmosphere of a passage. And we ended with the illustration. Let's say, let's say Will has a neighbor. He moves into a new neighborhood. And uh, he has some people over, and they park in his driveway, and maybe one of them parks a little partly blocking the neighbor's driveway. And Will gets a text from his new neighbor. And that text says, can you please ask your friends to not block our driveway? Eh. What if that text was in all caps? Would, would it have a different tone? I, I wouldn't want to get it. I'd think, oh, no, they're really upset. You know, because capital letters instantly communicates yelling or anger. I remember when we were first coming here, I got an email uh, from Brother Neiman. I still, it cracks me up thinking about it still. And uh, he was just rejoicing, but he, he, he wrote the thing in all caps. And at the very end, he said, I know that all caps indicates yelling, but so be it. Praise the Lord. <laughs> So, and we, we do this, we understand uh, some better than others. I think some are better at this, maybe, in conversation. Um, but picking up tones and body language and context behind things. How many of you think communication can be complicated? Is communication important in marriage? The better be. In any family, in friendships, in church life, communication's huge. And a big part of that is picking up tones, picking up the spirit of certain things. Uh, Bible passages do that. Um, uh, when you are reading a passage, many times there's an atmosphere that will jump out at you and give you some idea of the burden of the writer. Um, I want to actually, let's just, let me illustrate this. Okay, you're in, we turn to Galatians. Okay, now let me just illustrate this looking at Galatians and Ephesians, and then we're going to talk about what atmosphere 
Now, obviously, I can read this with emphasis, which I will. I'm not going to read it monotone, but I'll try not to make that the determining factor. Okay, what, what atmosphere do the first verses of Galatians and the first of Philippians communicate? All right, Galatians 1. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren which are with me under the churches of Galatia, grace be to you in peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Okay, that's Galatians 1, 1 through 9. Now turn to Philippians. Let's read the first nine or so verses of Philippians. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ even as it is meet for me to thank this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. All right. Nine verses, the beginning of two different epistles. Now, how would you classify the atmosphere in Galatians? What words? Heavily concerned. Heavily concerned, definitely. What else? Admonishing. Admonishing. It's a, it's a very corrective tone. What else? How about the word marvel? What, is that, what clue does that give you? What does it mean to marvel? Shocked. So his tone is shock, concern, uh, what else? Disappointment. Disappointment. I think that's part of it. Grief. How about, uh, would you call it defensive? Not defending self, but defending the truth of God and the gospel. I mean, his sword. I love what J. Vernon McGee says about Galatians. He says, Paul has his war paint on. That's such a McGee statement. And because... He gives this very brief introduction. It's not this long thing like he normally does. And he just, he just gets right to it. What about Philippians? How would you describe that? What are some words in that? What, what, what kind of, what is, how does that come across in its atmosphere? And again, I'm illustrating. These are the, first, these are the opening verses of these letters. And uh, those opening verses give you a huge clue as to where the letter's going. And the purpose of it, and what the tone is, and, and all of that. What is Philippians? What do you think? What are some words there? It's got prayers of joyful thanksgiving. Prayers of joyful thanksgiving. What else? 
Does it sound hopeful? Encouraging? Uh, interestingly enough, he, he, that's a prison epistle. He wrote that from prison. It's been called the Joy Book. Um, and it, it is full of joy. But, all right, why, why the difference? Now, that illustrates several things. One, about Paul, he didn't like beginning a letter that way. I don't think he didn't do that often. But he was willing to when the situation necessitated it. Most of the epistles dealt with some kind of error somewhere. Uh, that wasn't always the major emphasis, but most of, most of them correct something. Uh, but Galatians, in fact, we were talking about defense of the faith some time ago, and one of the statements I made is, you take the Gospels like the hornet's nest, the closer you get to the hornet's nest, the more the bees better come out. You know what I'm saying? Uh, somebody disagrees on the timing of the rapture. Would Paul have begun the letter like that? Probably not. Well, what was going on in Galatia? Well, Judaizing false teachers, men who didn't understand the gospel, had taken root in the churches and were accepted as teachers, and they were basically preaching a gospel that was works and law-based. So that would be the equivalent. Let's say, uh, most some of you know Wayne Tucker. I've never actually met him in person. I've talked to him. Uh, but he was one of the founder of this church or came along just, how would you describe that? He was a pastor, kind of a fill-in pastor for us. At the very beginning. At the very beginning. Has a great love for this church family. An older brother, he's back east last I heard. Um, but let's say Brother Tucker was gone and he heard, not just, not just hearsay, but he heard on good account that this church had a Catholic priest and a Mormon bishop teaching Sunday school. And everybody out here nodding, saying amen to what they said. That, that really is a fair picture of what was going on. Why do I pick those two? Because they're both a law and works-based gospel. They're not the gospel of Christ. So Paul actually is realizing some of these people are actually in full-blown apostasy. Some of them actually are not saved at all. And so he comes out and says, listen, I haven't changed my message. I'm telling you this just like I told you before. But even if I told you something different, even if an angel told you something different, if anybody, pre why would he say that? Why would he say, though, an angel from heaven? Why would he say that? Is an angel from heaven really going to come preach another gospel? No, but take some of the cults and what do they base their other gospel on? How about the angel Moroni? Hmm? Okay, so somebody, well, an angel appeared to me. Okay, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but let me show you what Paul said. Even if an angel comes and gives you another gospel, let that angel be accursed. Okay, that's pretty serious. Okay, so, but you pick up the tone in the epistle because of the importance of what's being dealt with. He dealt with, Again, error is dealt with usually on the level of its severity and how quickly and how much of a problem it's going to cause and uh, how sincere versus obstinate the, the offender is, etc. There, there's, there, there's different levels of dealing with that. But I hope that illustrates the tone in these two epistles that, again, you enter it and go, what's the atmosphere? Whoa, he's really, 
he's really worked up about something. What is it? And, and the whole book is a defense of the faith. That's what Galatians is. Uh, somebody wants to call you a legalist, ask them which New Testament book deals with legalism. If they don't say Galatians, they probably have no clue what legalism is. Not being unkind, I'm just telling you that that word gets thrown around a lot. Somebody says you're a legalist. I like to ask, what's a legalist? Well, somebody who makes rules. Uh, Do you tell your children to brush your teeth? Mm -hmm. Which Bible verse says that? Oh, you're a legalist. No, I'm not. Well, yeah, you are. According to your definition, you're a legalist. Somebody who has standards. Do you show up at church naked? No? How come? Well, I should at least wear some clothes. You're a legalist. You have a standard. You see what I'm saying? Uh, Many don't have a biblical basis for what they're saying. Okay, legalism, by the way, is trusting in a law-based system to either be saved or grow. That's in essence what legalism is. It's not high standards. It's not rules. Rules can get out of place and become legalism. There's no question about it. But they're not necessarily the same. So anyways, that shows a difference in atmosphere, though. So it's the underlying tone or spirit of a passage. It reflects the writer's own emotions about his topic. And again, I thank God that he, particularly in the epistles, but it's true in the Gospels, it's true in several books, the writer's personality comes out. And uh, many have a problem with that. Well, men will corrupt it. No, 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 no. See, here's the glorious thing about inspiration. It's this... I don't even know if co-authorship's the right word. Holy men of God moved as they wrote and spake as they were moved to the Holy Ghost. Uh, God created this personality uh, knowing they would be saved in eternity past. The man comes to Christ, and lo and behold, he has the perfect personality to write Acts or Luke or Mark or Revelation. Is that an accident? No, God made the man to write the message, but it wasn't mechanically dictated. The man's own personality comes out, and all the, all the writers have their own personality. It really is something. Um, John's personality, you read John's epistles, John had a different personality than Jude. <laughs> he did, he had a different personality. A different burden in his books, too, but uh, different men. So it shows the writer's own emotions. It involves the emotions that he wishes the reader would feel about the topic. In Galatians, Paul is trying to communicate through the Holy Spirit, not just to them, but to us. This is how alarmed you should be when a professing Christian adopts a gospel that is based on works. It's not, I'm okay, you're okay. It's not, we'll deal about it later. It's, wait, 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 wait a minute. Let's clarify this. How are you saved? Do you understand that? So Paul would have done to these people. And he asked them, are you so foolish? Haven't you gone in the Spirit? Are you now made perfect by the flesh? He goes into great depth about the law and Hagar and Ishmael and the difference between Ishmael and Isaac. And that is an allegory. It's mentioned as one. And what he's illustrating is the works of the flesh cannot justify or sanctify. They cannot. Um, That's kind of the point of the book. Anyways, um, so when we discern the emotions the writer wants to draw from us, we're able to apply the passage more completely. Um, 
And we describe it with words. Fearful, angry, excited, joyful, happy, sorrowful, or any of these other emotional type words. They're good word for relating the atmosphere. All right, turn to Psalm 150. All right, I'm going to read this three different ways. Let me illustrate this. Psalm 150. Maybe I'll read it four different ways. All right, you, you tell me which, which of my reading styles befits the atmosphere. All right, Psalm 150. Praise ye the Lord, praise God in His sanctuary, praise Him in the firmament of His power, praise Him for His mighty acts, praise Him according to His excellent greatness, praise Him with sound of the trumpet, praise Him with the psaltering harp. How about this one? Praise ye the Lord, praise God in His sanctuary, Praise Him in the firmament of His power. Praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the sound of the trumpet. How about this one? Praise ye the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in the firmament of His power. How many of you want to stop me on all three of those and go, oh boy, you're missing it. How about praise ye the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in the firmament of His power. Praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise Him with the psaltery and harp. Did I get it? Okay, so what's the tone of that passage? What should it be? Joy, exuberance. It's not mad. It's not questioning. It's not monotone. It's, it's, it's excitement. And uh, it, it, and now we say it a lot. Emotions can never be in charge. That's true. If you make decisions on emotion alone, you're going to end up in hot water a whole lot. Um, but we can't make the mistake of saying that our emotions are no good at all. That's an error the other way. God does not want us to be blocks of wood. Um, I... I just, I, and I say this as, as a general thing, I, I, I want to be careful. You know, we don't, we're not going the rock band route and all that sort of thing. But we've also got to be careful that in trying to maintain conservative music, we don't have the idea that all emotion's bad. That we can't feel the goodness of God in a sense. Now that's not determinative. I don't, I don't, determine doctrine based on a feeling I got. But man, doctrine can sure produce feeling. It should. The psalmist, it happened all the time. The psalms are filled with emotion. Emotion governed by truth, by the way. But there's, there's lots of emotion. Um, All right, so discerning the atmosphere is something we often do subconsciously as we read a passage. You know, it's kind of like, and by the way, a lot of the background, I mentioned elect Exodus 20 uh, through 24, um, the giving of the law. What, what was happening around them when the law was given? What, what are some of the descriptions you remember? What, what, what was the atmosphere in the camp? Partying. No, well... 
uh, later on, and by, by the golden calf incident it was, but when they first were, you're right, but when they first came to Sinai, this, this is what makes that so shocking. The law is about to be given, and what happens? What does the mountain look like? It looks like it's smoking. It's shaking. It's getting hit with lightning. They put a barrier around it that whatever man or beast crosses that, he has to be struck through with a spear. He told the men, stay away from your wives leading up to this moment. Tomorrow you have this solemn assembly before the God of all creation. The atmosphere at the giving of the law was one of sheer terror. The whole passage laid, before you ever get to the thou shalts and thou shalt not, it is pure fear of a holy God. Now that's done with a reason, for a purpose, because the law is the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. If a man doesn't know something of God's holiness, he can never be saved. If all somebody knows of God is mercy, he does not understand the gospel. You can't be convicted of sin without a sense of a holy God that you have individually offended. Now, levels of conviction vary. I don't think we'll ever understand how bad we really are completely. But there has to be enough of an understanding to produce a fear of God. So the law is given in that atmosphere for a reason. I mean, if you, if you jump in and read the law, and I read it with this just happy-go-lucky, smiley tone, and it was divorced from the context, you might get the idea, hey, these are suggestions, right? This was a, this was a, this was a big camp trip, really. Uh, no, not really. Um, okay, so the atmosphere matters. Um, Sometimes the writer tells us exactly what he was feeling, like Paul did. I marvel. He actually told him. I, Paul didn't say that very much. I'm shocked. I cannot. I find it amazing this experienced apostle who knew human nature, who was used to pen about half of the New Testament, he was shocked at how quickly they had defected. It blew his mind. He thought, how did that happen? I, I thought, I was sure they had a good understanding of things, and, and they turned that fast? So he's shocked. So sometimes the writer will tell us. Uh, other times we detect the atmosphere by subtle associations we observe in the passage. If it gives the, like an exodus, it gives the, what's happening around the scene. Or uh, watch carefully for repeated words that can reveal the tone or spirit of the passage. One thing that helps, by the way, is reading it out loud. I'm not saying it's a fixed rule, but you might find it helpful discerning a tone to actually read it out loud. And it forces you to emphasize and to try to sort through what, what and sometimes hearing it and reading it, it helps you go, okay, I, I see what he's saying. I, I get more of the tone of where he's going with this. Um, if you find you naturally use emphasis or emotions as you read aloud, ask yourself why you've done that. You'll most likely find something in the passage associated with that mood. All right, one more. Let's turn to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. All right, now, I'm going to give you a hint. I'm going to have everybody read this quietly for a minute. Psalm 32, all 11 verses. Um, there's a tone switch that goes one way and then back. There's two verses. Let's see. Let's see if we can pick it out. Okay, Psalm 32, where is the shift in tone? Psalm 
Um, yeah, we could probably divide it like that. Everybody done reading? Anybody have a suggestion? Where does it? Roger says it changed. At verse three, the tone changes. Anybody agree or disagree? You're right. It does. I would say uh, it switches back at least initially um, in verse five. It switches back to more of a positive, good note. Really, what it's talking about is praising God for His forgiveness of sin. Blessed is the man whose iniquity is forgiven, his transgression, his sin is covered. Uh, that's pulled forward into Romans, Romans 4, uh, as Paul talks about David describing the blessedness of this man. But as he's writing about praising God for this incredible forgiveness, he reverts back to his own experience of, and what this is talking about was his sin with Bathsheba, murder and adultery, which, by the way, took him about a year to confess. David just, I'm good. We're good. Everything's fine. You all right, David? Yeah, why? And he describes what it, look at it, look at he's described. When I kept silence, when, when I was aware of my sin and I did nothing about it, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. He said he was inwardly screaming and he felt like he had spiritual osteoporosis. His bones were eating away inside of him. He felt like he was internally dying. Day and night, he says, thy hand was heavy on me. It, and it's interesting, it wasn't this, but it was like the hand of God was on him just pushing like this. There's this constant sense of pressure. God's hand was heavy on me. I was painfully aware all day and all night I was out of fellowship with God and I needed to deal with my sin and I wouldn't do it. And then in, what happens in verse 5? I acknowledge my sin unto thee. Mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, okay, he came to a census. It's kind of like the prodigal. Remember the prodigal? He says, I'll arise and go to my father. He finally gets up and goes, why in the world, the son of a, of a wealthy man, why am I in a far country sharing pig food when even my father's servants have enough food to eat? I, I'm going back. And David had that. David, same thing David did. David stayed in the hog trough about almost a year. And he comes to his senses and goes, why am I doing this exactly? And really, it's a good question to ask ourselves. Why, why, what is it that makes me not confess sin? Now, let me, let me be clear. I'm not talking about sin we're not aware of. You can't confess sin you're not aware of. Now, we should search our heart, but there's, there's times you're not, you're not aware of anything. God is not beating you for a sin you have no idea you did. We're talking here about you know, David. He, he knew what he did, and it was on him. But he finally comes to his senses and says, I'll confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. So he says that God cleansed me. Now, he was back in fellowship with God as soon as the sin was confessed. Now, did he face consequences? He sure did. One of the marvelous things about David's life, I find, is that he was able to see God gave consequences for his actions, but the love and the fellowship of God didn't leave. So 
Some of the Psalms were written, David's fellowship with God, while he was being disciplined. But he was in fellowship with God. Now the discipline still had to come, but he didn't look at it and go, well, God must hate me. No. The sins dealt with. Fellowship and consequences are two different things. Um, so what So what happens with David? I mean, you the thing switches back to, all right, I confess my sin. Now I'm back in the state of, of, of praising God for His forgiveness. What comes out of confessed sin, even for a guy who did that? Um, for this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. So he expects God's protection now that his sin is confessed. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. He expects God's fellowship and an intimate uh, sense of God being there with him. And then it switches to the Lord speaking in verse 8, which is, you're right, there's a switch in a sense here where God is saying, now it's debatable. Some think David's saying this now that he has his boldness with sin confessed. I think it's the Lord speaking here. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. So he expects guidance. Clear guidance after sin is confessed. By the way, this is an amazing passage. He says, Be not as the horse or the mule which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Uh, do you know that God would a thousand times rather lead you by the glance of the eye than the bit and bridle? He's willing to put up walls of discipline and jerk your face the right direction. He's willing to, but He doesn't want to. I mean, what's the glance of the eye mean? You're aware something's the pleasure and desire of God, and your disposition is, I'm going to do it. I don't have to wait to be beaten into it or drugged that way. It pleases my Father. I'm going to do it. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord mercy shall compass him about. So he expects God's mercy to be manifested. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. So sin is dealt with, and what floodgate opens? Joy, guidance, peace, fellowship, direction. It's amazing what happens all in Psalm 32. But that, that change of tone is huge. It shows us how miserable he was <laughs> as he recounts that. And he didn't hide it either. You see what he calls it, sin, transgression, iniquity. It's like a, its own vocabulary of evil words. He, he describes it and calls it, well, Lord, I, you know, I made a mistake. It wasn't a mistake. It was wickedness. It was sin. It was iniquity. It was transgression. All right, so observing changes in atmosphere will help us understand verses that seem out of place. Uh, sometimes those verses jump out at us. Where'd that come from? Um, it gives, it, it, the tone kind of helps us. Um, by the way, another, another startling example of that insta, that change in tone, I think, is Romans 9 through 11. Uh, you know, Paul's building the doctrine of justification by faith, and then Romans 6 and 7 are dealing with sanctification, and, verse, and chapter 8 is the victorious walk in the Spirit. And then the next two chapters, or three chapters, are talking about God's sovereign dealings with Israel as a nation, and the burden just comes out. And Paul is asking, he says, has God cast away His people? He says, 
I have this heavy burden, this continual weight in my soul that I could wish myself a curse for my brother. And so part of his reason for sharing that is the great weight he had in his soul for the Jewish people. And so he communicates, this is what God's doing with them nationally. Don't be ignorant of this, lest he be wise in your own conceit, Gentile world, because God's not finished with a Jew. Not, not nationally, he's not. So the change in tone again illustrates that. All right, um, let's see. Um, one more, Philippians 2, 5 to 11. One more illustration of this change in tone. Is an astounding passage. And by the way, uh, this is a tremendous battleground, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, for theological minds to write voluminous articles on what exactly is being discussed, particularly with the kenosis of Christ, the emptying out. Um, I mentioned in the, the hymn by John Wesley, which I love, and can it be, but it's actually wrong the way he penned it when he said emptied himself of all but love, that's not true. Um, Christ did not empty himself of deity. He laid aside the exercise of some of his attributes. But enough of them were shown through that there was no question he was God. <laughs> Walking on water, reading minds, feeding thousands. I mean, uh, he, he showed flashes of deity. So it wasn't that he got rid of deity or that he got rid of everything but love. Did Christ get rid of holiness when he came to earth? No. Did he get rid of justice? Did he get rid of mercy? No. Um, he laid aside the exercise of some of those. But anyway, let, let's, let, let's just go to the, just the practical nature of the words. Again, this, this, this passage just gets darker and then gets bright again. Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. He's saying cultivate this mindset. Uh, our problem sometimes, I will say my problem a lot of the time, Think too much of self and too little of Christ. A lot, a lot, I'll say, a lot of my own problems that I wrestle with, it'll come back to that. <laughs> if you were considering Him, this wouldn't be an issue. Uh, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." So it goes down this slope into the death of the cross, and then it comes out with exaltation. By the way, that, that kind of mirrors our own Christian life. It should. As self is more and more crucified, and we learn to identify more and more with Him, there's going to be dark seasons. But where does it end? Exaltation. I mean, how many of you... Thank God that every knee, every knee of Lucifer, 
of all the demons, of every atheist, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. How many of you, it bothers you when people curse His name and minimize His name and drag it through the mud and mock it? I hate it. I don't like that. But I thank the Lord the day is coming where no more. <laughs> uh, God's way of exaltation is through the way of the cross. It's always been that way. Okay, but you see the tone change there in that passage. All right, we better be done. Any further questions or comments before we end? All right, let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank You for our glorious Savior. Help us to let that mind be in us. Lord, You know we don't want difficulty. And it's okay if we don't want it. Help us to cultivate a mindset that realizes that submission and obedience is the path of blessing. Just for a little while, He that will come will come and not tarry. I thank You that we look for King Jesus to come back. Amen.